2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And we have a fun interview today. Uh, If you have ever been to the High Museum of Art in Atlanta and you have experienced their really impressive and incredibly lovely African art collection, what you may not realize is that is the vision of primarily one person, who is Carol Thompson, our guest today. Carol has been with The High for nearly
2: 16 years as the Fred and Rita Richmond Curator of African Art. And she was kind enough to visit the studio and sit down to talk with Holly about her career path, her passion for art, and the challenges of assembling a collection.
0: Yeah, she also talks a lot about the importance of African art in world history and world culture. So let's hop right in. So today we are super duper lucky because I have in studio with me Carol Thompson, who is the Fred and Rita Richmond Curator of African Art at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. How lucky am I? Thank you so much, Ollie. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for being here. So uh, I know we have a lot of listeners that are very interested in art and art history. So I have to ask you right out of the gate. How did you become an art curator? I feel like that's one of those things people always say it's a dream job, but they don't know if there are multiple avenues to get into that career or if it's a fairly set track. So tell us how to become you. <laughs> so there,
3: there are many paths, and my path was certainly a long and winding path, not a straight line at all. Some people choose the straight line, which would be academic straight through PhD as quickly as possible. I did not do that. I'm from a small, small town in Minnesota, and everyone first meets me and says, how in the world could you be the curator of African art? Since you can't see my face, you don't know that my eyes are blue, and at the, at the moment I have champagne blonde hair, <laughs> but my hair is normally. So I'm a blonde, blue-eyed uh, Norwegian ancestry. But I'm, I'm going to actually, if you forgive me, Holly, I'm going to jump to the very last question uh-huh. that you're about to ask me. And in my view... Just as French Impressionism is not only for the French, Mm -hmm. African art is not only for Africans and not only for peoples of African ancestry. But then on the other hand, if you look back in history, everyone is of African ancestry. But of course, you know, so but to be more precise, I I was introduced, I became interested in art when I was in high school, and I started out drawing, and I sometimes still draw. So I started out as um, as an artist, and my first drawing professor at Hamlin University came from a family that collected African art. And uh, that was St. Paul, Minnesota, just adjacent to Minneapolis. He, he said, you should also pay attention to African art. The Minneapolis Institute has a tremendous collection of African art. The Walker Art Center at that time was presenting a fantastic exhibition of the arts of Ghana, and there was an African film festival At the time, African cinema remains one of my strong interests, but at the undergraduate level, I was interested in art from lots of different times and places. But when I decided to go on to pursue a PhD, I went to the University of Iowa. I'd already lived in New York and Paris, and I thought, let me go back to the Midwest, be near my parents for a minute, and my family, because no doubt I'm going to be leaving again after I finish my study. And... So I went to the University of Iowa, and that art history department is the first department in the country to offer African art at the level of a PhD in the art history department. And who would think? The University of Iowa?
0: Yeah, that would not have been my first guess. Right.
3: <laughs> and it's because of an artist, uh, Mauricio Lazansky, Le- who was the father of Leo Lazansky, my drawing professor that told me to look at African art and not forget African art. So... But then I, so at the Minneapolis Institute, there is a mask that I still can see so clearly in my mind. And it's displayed differently now than it was when I was in in the 70s in undergraduate school. At that time, it was all by itself in a case. And you could see it from the back as well as from the front. And it's a mask that has four eyes two noses, two mouths, so it looks like three faces overlapping. So it looks like it's in motion, even when still.
0: Oh, how beautiful. Yeah,
3: and thats i I was contemplating whether or not I should reveal this information about myself. But after working in New York at the Center for African Art from 1987 to, I think, 1996, I returned to school to... I only did my M.A. at the University of Iowa. I did some graduate work in art history at Columbia while I was with the Center for African Art. But then after nine years with the museum, very extraordinary time, I decided, okay, time to get a Ph.D. So I moved on to the Department of Performance Studies at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Mm -hmm. And this is the reveal that I don't often reveal. (laughs) I'm ABD. All but dissertation.
0: Oh you, the dirty secret. <laughs> that's the dirty <laughs>
3: secret. So, when you first become ABD, it's something to tell the world because that means you finished all of the coursework, right? But to not write your dissertation, it's a it's a terrible waste. But at this point in my life, I've published so much, I have had already yeah. quite a productive career. To go back and do that, and my dissertation was approved. The title I worked on it. There's big outline. One of my advisors said, Carol, each chapter could be a dissertation, but stubborn headed as I am, I thought, I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> so the title of that unwritten dissertation was African art performing objects. Ah. You know? Actually, another title, slaves to sculpture, African art performing objects.
0: So of course that mask was <laughs> exactly it sang you a siren song. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Was there a point at which you realized like African art is definitely the thing for me was it something you ruminated over, or was there just something that drew it, so, drew you to it, and, and as a decisive moment? The
3: decisive moment was when I was at the University of Iowa, mm-hmm. and my professor at the time, Christopher Roy. I went. I remember when I first met him. It was a little cocktail party to introduce the new grad students to the faculty and other students, and. I for some reason got into a conversation with him about Burkina Faso because that's one of his areas of expertise and I said the capital of the city and I mispronounced it I said Ouagadougou and he said Carol it's Ouagadougou <laughs> Just a couple just last week, I was talking to Michael Rooks, my closest colleague at the high, the curator of Contemporary and Modern Art, and I was talking about Ouagadougou, and it just made him he did that laugh, that snorting laugh. He didn't believe that it was really a place, <laughs> and I remember send, sending money to someone who was my translator and who I commissioned work from, Yakuba Bonde, a sculptor from the Bois region. Mm-hmm. and when I went to Western Union, they said, Burkina Faso, that's not a place. We can't send money there. And I said, no, really, it is. It is a place, (laughs) and we can send money there. So anyway, so when my professor, Christopher Roy, actually right in my first and second year there, he was going to Burkina Faso every spring semester. And some of the grad students were complaining. I came here to study with him, and he's not even here. And I said, no, 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 this is a very good thing. That means he's at the forefront of this discipline. Ah. And he is really one of the world's experts on the art of Burkina. He's published this gigantic book of the Tom Wheelock collection, which is the most important collection of art from Burkina in the world. We've had works on loan from that collection. But Chris Roy, would he was getting funding from National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities. And even to this day, he he loves video. Mm -hmm. And That was in the 80s, like 84, 85, and video was not so big as it is now. And he was going to Burkina Faso and attending masquerade performances throughout the whole nation, and there are more than 60 different ethnic groups there. Mm -hmm. So he's documented the masquerade traditions of all of Burkina. And he would come back with video, and so in the classroom he would be showing slides, And then he would stop the slide projector and show this unedited raw footage of masquerade in Burkina. And it was larger than life. I was like, okay, this is it. I got to go to Burkina Faso." (laughs) And they have masquerade traditions that have wooden elements, the masks Mm -hmm. that we have in museums. But they also have a type of mask that I just became enthralled by, leaf masks. They're the, they're a bit like Nick Cave, you
2: mm-hmm. know the artist. Yeah, yeah. And he's in fact he partly inspired. Yeah, he here did a at performance concert. here. Absolutely, we did a video yeah,
3: yeah. about it from of yeah. Works. Okay, yeah. wonderful. I have to go back and find that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's lovely. So there, it's a very sacred form, and the it's a body total your total body body is covered with leaves, and that mask is the embodiment of the spirit of dough. And dough, it's all about regeneration. So the masquerade performs, Burkina is on the edge of the Sahara, Sahara. So the masquerade performs at the end of the dry season before the next agricultural season begins. It's considered the oldest and most sacred of the masquerade traditions. And there's almost a competition between families, the mas- the families that use leaf masks as opposed to the newcomers who use wood masks. So I, I love both but i I'm actually initiated because the first time I went oh. there, I wanted to be close to the leaf masks, mm-hmm. and they said, "No, Carol, only for the initiated so i I could watch the masquerade over the earthen wall mm-hmm. of the compound where I was staying with Mamadou Fofana, a Muslim family, but I couldn't approach the masks, so that was frustrating it was frustrating that was nineteen eighty seven then I went back to Burkina Faso before I came to Atlanta in 2001. I had finished my coursework at NYU. I was teaching at Vassar. I was teaching African art at Vassar and introduction to world art at City College in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And somehow I managed to carve out four weeks mid semester. Oh my goodness. To go to Burkina Faso. I got substitutes to cover for me and I got a research grant, faculty research grant from Vassar to go to Burkina Faso. And I went with my best friend, one of my best friends still today, Patricia Blanchet, who's done a whole series of photographs from that moment called Burkina Reflected, large-scale formal portraits, a bit inspired by the work of Malik Bey and seydou Keita. She actually had a show at what was the Ace Atlanta College of Art mm-hmm. Gallery, now SCAD, those large-scale color portraits Burkina Reflected. But that was just amazing. I was hadn't been there from 87 to 2001, and the people were like, she came back. (laughs) (laughs) And she came back with photographs that she took when she was here in 87. So I had pictures, small little pictures, but pictures of people who had grown up, pictures of people who had died. And that was partly what sort of inspired Patricia to then start this photo series. And then we traveled back to Burkina together. And 2003 and 2005, we haven't been back since. So, but I I would love to return again. But then there are so many other places in Africa I'd also like to go to. So that was a long and winding road. But.
0: Yeah, but you ended up initiated, so you could oh, get close to those masks.
3: Exactly. I forgot to say thank you. So, <laughs> so when I went back with Patricia in 2002, the leaf masks were performing in another town, and I said, but I thought they could only, you could only, you know. Be, uh, they said no, no, no. Doe speaks all languages. Anyone can come with to Doe with a sort of ask. Gotcha. So I had just applied for the job at the High Museum, so my ask was secure the position at the High Museum as curator of African art. So in order to do that, I had to make a sacrifice to Doe, and part of that involved then the ma- being. The masquerade being performed. So
0: oh, how wonderful.
3: The only thing I wasn't able to wear red, and I was I had a red dress. They said no a red dress is allowed, but I could wear my lipstick. Wow while being initiated. But I just love the idea of the spirit of regeneration. Yeah. I mean, that I could that and someone asked me, Are you Christian? I said, I have another faith, and it's more based on nature and the spirit of regeneration. I'm a child of dough.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because I have heard you talk before about the importance of education, uh, and how it combats some of these long-held and very problematic ideas that people have about African art and some very racist stereotypes. So could you, uh, talk a little bit about the gap that exists between those ideas that were planted in the 19th century uh, that really do a great disservice to African art and the actual reality and sort of why that gap exists,
3: yeah, absolutely, thank you so much it 's so important, and that 's really one of the reasons why i and a friend of mine uh, you know before I came here said she saw an announcement about the position curator of African art at the high, and she said that would be an interesting job, be in Atlanta and be responsible for you know Conveying the importance of African art to the people of the city, the region, and then even beyond. But I was, I had uh, friends visiting just a couple months ago and went over to the S- Center for Human and Civil Rights. And right there at the entrance, if you, still, you see those TVs from mm-hmm. the 50s, that very powerful display, various people talking, white men talking about various things. And one of them, the man is saying, you know, Africa. They were savages and, you know, they're best off here. You know, the people of the South were better to them than anything they knew before they came here. And like, uh oh, no, not mm-hmm. quite. So one of the very deepest stereotypes about Africa is that, uh, and this was um Hegel, the German philosopher, that Africa has no history. Because it's the spoken word that is so highly valued. Right. And the oral tradition, which even comes through in hip hop to this day. So the misperception that Africa has no history because the history isn't written. Right. Is totally wrong. And also there are Islamic records going way back in time. The high just recently acquired a Quran that is written from Timbuktu. The place of great scholarship from the eleventh to the sixteenth century then declined because of the shift of the trans-Saharan trade to the transatlantic trade, but Timbuktu was so 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 important, and so uh, history in Arabic, but also history handed down by word of mouth. The high has a work that was relatively recently acquired when we acquired it we didn't know the its full importance and this has become my favorite work in the collection and it's actually i wrote about it for the museum's high life magazine that the museum the magazine that sent out to all members it's a sculpture that comes from the region of the ancient city of geney Jenne is like is a sister city to Timbuktu. Jenne is believed to be the oldest city in sub-Saharan Africa, so that's the region where this work comes from. Jenne is a UNESCO. The entire city is a World Heritage Site mm-hmm. because of the Great Mosque, the earthen mosque that's at the scale of Notre Dame. And there's you can go online. You can find wonderful videos, even a New York Times video that talks about the importance of this city. So that mosque is made out of red clay, just like the terracotta sculpture that we have in the collection. Recently, we collaborated with Grady Hospital, and we took the sculpture over to Grady and did a CT scan. And then after that, we sent small samples to a lab at Oxford in England, mm-hmm. and we needed, needed to do that because a couple of European colleagues of mine were working on an article, and they wanted to, do, to include the high sculpture, but they would not include it until we provided the CT scan and the TL test to verify its authenticity. Ah, we did that. We also got beautiful three D images of the work, and at Grady, it was so fun. And I, I should shout out, give a shout out to my colleagues there. Dr. Malko and Dr. Fontaine, but facilitated by Renee Stein, the objects conservator over at Emory and the, at the Carlos. Together we did this CT scanning and that then we provided that information to these two scholars, but this, the TL test told us that the work was created sometime between 1215 and 1515 at the height of the Empire of Mali, which was the West African Empire that spread all the way to the Atlantic and even as far inland as Burkina and Niger, one of the greatest empires of that time. So founded by Sunjata, the epic of Sunjata is the oral history that was only written down relatively recently by a scholar from Guinea, and you can read the epic of Sanjata. When I taught at City College in Harlem, it was required reading for all freshmen as world literature. That was the one that was at the top of the list for Africa. Anyway, the sculpture, back to the sculpture. It's a fragment, but it's an extraordinarily it's an extraordinary work that it's a female tor- torso wrapped in sma- snakes, but it, it looks like a dancing figure. It has so much movement, which is quite unusual for an African sculpture. Another feature of the sculpture that I always wondered about is that there is, it looks almost like a mountain range of running vertically between the breasts. Hmm. And it's so anatomically incorrect. I thought, what is this? Right. So these two scholars have assembled a whole group of works that are portraits of Sogolong. Sogolon, S-O-G-O-L-O-N, Sogolong. Sogolon. so glad you spelled that. <laughs> Sogolong was the mother of Sunjata. Ah! Right. We have a portrait of Sogolong, mother of Sunjata, founder of the Mali Empire. And we know this because that little projection between her breasts, there are other sculptures that share that same feature. And in the oral history... She went to, so she was a real woman. She gave birth to Sunjata. She became a mythical personality. And one of her abilities was to shoot poison, poison-tipped poison porcupine quills from her chest to oh, subdue Oh, everybody her.
0: can do that, right? I mean, that's <laughs> right, yeah. an acquirable skill.
3: <laughs> exactly. And she also could be, uh, sprout horns and become a buffalo woman. And you can actually see her turn into a buffalo woman as she comes out of a tree trunk in the feature film called Keita, Heritage of a Griot.
0: It is, uh, we just did an episode slightly different about Great Zimbabwe and how mm-hmm. th- that had been believed for a long time yeah. to have been built by some other culture right, that exactly. moved in. It no, no, no. <laughs> was not attributed to the people that actually built and lived there for a long time.
3: I'd love to go there. It's on my bucket list, along with Lalibela and so many other places.
0: Perfect. Uh, we are next going to talk about kind of how the layman can get their in into African art history. But first we're going to pause and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. <laughs>
1: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
0: So jumping back in, there are so many different styles of art in African history, and I know for someone who is not particularly familiar with it, it can be a little overwhelming. So where do you start to educate someone who's interested in African art, hi- art history, but just doesn't know where to begin?
3: Come to the High Museum.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody's in Atlanta, though. You visit the website. Yeah.
3: Or go to any museum that has African art uh-huh. and look at the collection and just go towards whatever draws you in and then find out more about whatever that is and then start from there.
0: Just find your moment. Yeah. You could even go to the Atlanta airport and visit there. Lo- actually, quite lovely sculpture collection. You
3: could, or you could go. There's going to be an exhibition. Can I give a plug to SCAD? Yeah, Stad? absolutely. Savannah College of Art in February is going to present the work of a young artist named Omar Victor Diop. And he's from Dakar, mm-hmm. but moves around in the world, often in Paris. He'll be here in Atlanta, which is extraordinary. Yeah. And he has done a whole series called, uh, that is called the Project Diaspora. And he, he, they're portraits, self-portraits, but he presents himself as a historic figure. Oh, I love it. But with some, like a soccer ball or something just to disrupt that image. And I'm going to just read for a moment about sure. one of his works that I particularly love. It's, um, Portrait, of a prince from the Kingdom of the Congo, which is well represented in the Heist Collection, Congo Art, Congo with a K. You might remember the Congo Across the Water show that was at the Carter Center a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Anyway, this prince from the Kingdom of the Congo, so was perhaps one of the earliest African leaders who wrote publicly to protest protest colonial influences. Nicolao protested against Portuguese commercial and political activity and military expansion by publishing a letter in a Portuguese newspaper in Lisbon. His exact birth date remains uncertain. Contemporary engravings of the Nicholas, rather, during his visit in Lisbon in 1845 suggest that he was then perhaps 15 to 20 years of age. Anyway, it's a wonderful, glorious portrait of this prince from the king kingdom of the congo and you'll be able to see it at scad in
0: february oh that sounds excellent so if you're in atlanta go see it if you're not go to your museum and find that one thing that catches your eye
3: or there's also i've been looking at it um art news africa Mm -hmm. instagram feed fabulous
0: i haven't followed it but i will now Yeah,
3: yeah it's wonderful and it it's such a you can see such a broad range of work there
0: Now, as a curator, which you have been doing for quite some time now, what are the biggest challenges that you personally face when you're developing a collection or an exhibit that focuses on African art? Money. Money, always.
3: You need a budget to buy art. And I've done really well. Also getting gifts. I had a very strong network. I have a very strong network of collectors across the nation and even in Europe who have made gifts to the High Museum. So I've been able to build a, a respectable collection, not so much through purchases, but through gifts. But museums, not only the High Museum, but even the Met, I think, especially because of their recent expansion and all the cost of that, museums are always in need of benefactors. And in this day and age, new benefactors, the next generation. So I hope in Atlanta, especially with Rand Suffolk mm-hmm. in place as our new director, we're reaching out, out to community communities across Atlanta in a way that we have never, never really done so thoroughly and deeply before.
0: Well, hopefully. I mean, we <laughs> all dream of a world where like art is always funded and no one has to worry about it.
3: Endowments are always good. Oh, and, yes. And my position is endowed. I do have another special initiative endowment that provides some funds for acquisitions, but that endowment was established to help the high establish regional leadership in African art. Funds can be used for exhibitions, acquisitions, travel, and research programming. So you can imagine the pressure on those limited funds. So more, if anyone would like to endow, make an endowment, (laughs) and have a legacy, the. Um so-and-so African Art Endowment at the High Museum, they can join Fred and Rita as uh
0: Nice. Uh And you wrote a book titled African Art Portfolio, An Illustrated Introduction, Masterpieces from the 11th to the 20th Centuries. And it touches a lot on the use of art as a means of spiritual communication with ancestors. Can you talk a little bit about that and the important role of spirituality in African art?
3: So... I actually meant to go back and look at that book because it's been so long since I <laughs> wrote that book. It was when I was at the Center for African Art in New York, and I was in charge of the education program. Mm-hmm. I, sw- I started out in curatorial at the Center for African Art when it was in two adjacent townhouses at 68th and Park. Then we moved and moved to Soho, and somewhere in that time between 87 and 96, I became... The, I, I was in charge of the education department, then I switched back to curatorial, but I wrote that book when I was in head of the education department. And so it's a very introductory publication based on works previously, previously exhibited at the Center for African Art. And you can see the span, 11th to the 20th century, it's got to be. But spirituality... One of the shows that I worked on worked on, and that I'm sure is represented in that book, was called "Wild Spirits, Strong Medicine: African Art and the Wilderness." And in terms of spirituality in Africa, it's not just one thing. Right. It takes so many different forms. And that Instagram feed I was just looking at it recently, there there was. There's a fantastic little short video clip of a cloth masquerade performing. It's a, it's a, it made out of cloth. And when the dancer moves, it turns into this big circle that like spirals or moves all across the dance space. And it's a festival that takes place in Benin to this day. And it just took place January 10th. So wish I had been there, but, and it's to honor ancestral spirits through cloth masquerade performance. Nye museum does have on view an Agungung Cloth Masquerade and the Agungung Masquerade Association. It's a men's masquerade association that honors ancestral spirits through cloth masquerade performance. So that's just one example. But Wild Spirits Strong Medicine included a whole entourage of masks from Burkina Faso that are s- conceived in part to harness the power of nature spirits to the benefit of humankind. Oh, that's
0: so. lovely. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about, and you kind of gave me a nice intro at the very top, is a little bit about the way African art, as you said, you know, there's, we sort of all come from there. Uh, but we don't really think about how much African art has really influenced global art. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Absolutely. And of course, everyone thinks of Picasso first off, and we do have, um, Wonderful mask in the High Museum's collection. It's a recent acquisition, relatively recent acquisition. It's made possible through the Collector's Evening Initiative. It's a mask from the Pende region of Democratic Republic of the Congo. Pende masquerade continues to the present. This mask was probably created during the 30s, and it has an extraordinarily distorted face that is black on one side and white on the other. And so it's a very abstract kind of work, and the famous, famous exhibition that was at the Museum of Modern Art, in the I think '84, Primitivism. You might have the two-volume catalogue, and mm-hmm. it's common in many libraries because it was a landmark exhibition. And there's an image of this this very mask, and the the author. I remember there are so many different authors, but I think it's in the chapter that William Rubin, the curator, wrote about, cites this pende mask as a source of inspiration to Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. But then other scholars say no, pende masks weren't yet in the the. Musée d'Orsay at that time, and it was Picasso. There's famous quotes about from Picasso talking about his visit to the Musée d'Orsay, and he was so 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 struck by the African art that he saw, and that was something that led to Les Demoiselles. But of course, that's just that's early twentieth century. There, I think I've become more and more interested in African art, and late 20th and mm-hmm. early 20th century artists. I When I was in New York, I was particularly drawn to work created by David Hammons. Mm-hmm. And one of the works, I think, was actually impi- inspired in part by an image from my book, The African Art Portfolio. It's one of my favorite masks in the world. It's a mask, Geliday mask. Geliday, like a is a Yoruba men's masquerade tradition, but a is for the ancestors, to honor the ancestral spirits. A um, Gelade, is to honor women. So there's an image of what I think is the most beautiful Gelade in the world that I had hoped to acquire for the high. But when it sold at auction, the estimate was, I think, 150,000, 150,000. It went for. Much more than that. I couldn't have even reached that
0: mark. Just pin money.
3: And I think it's actually going to be somewhere in Qatar when they oh. finish one of those museums. It's glorious, sublime work of art. But David Hammons, roughly at the time that my portfolio was published, and I, I shared that book with him, he created a work called Freudian Slip. Mm-hmm. And he comes from a family. He had had six sisters, and he put a woman slip One of those old fashioned slips with the little pleated skirt, Mm -hmm. sort of translucent pink. He put a Galladay mask that he found, I think at the time it was Chelsea Market was selling, you know, sort of replica objects. So he got a Galladay mask and he put it under the slip of the skirt in this slip and he called it freudian slip <laughs> and uh, to me it's just one of the most extraordinary works but you know we already mentioned nick cave there are so many artists but even young young artists in africa today in cities all across the continent they're c- creating work that does i mean sometimes not at all sometimes they're more engaged by other ways of making art but sometimes they do like Omar Victor Diop, he's referring to the bas- past while he creates contemporary work.
0: And I imagine there are a lot of artists that don't even realize that the influence has trickled down to them in their work, not just in Africa, but throughout the globe. Yeah. Uh,
3: I, we just had a visitor, a student who's finishing her PhD at Berkeley, writing about the work of Howardine and Pindell. And she's an artist whose work is represented in the Heise collection. She had a show at Spellman and spoke recently. But I, I was just with this visitor looking at one of her dot paintings that is in the Heise collection. It's a small work. It looks like an abstract sort of minimalist color field work. She took paper punched circles mm-hmm. and in a very careful way sort of sprinkled them and secured them. So it's, it's a, it's a work on paper, but three dimensional. Absolutely amazing. And she talks about one of the sources of inspiration for that work was African beadwork. So it's not only mask, but you can find so many, so many different ways to approach African art and be inspired by it.
0: I love it. Uh, We are going to once again pause for a brief word from a sponsor before we come back and finish our chat with Carol. So hang in. We'll be right back with you.
2: Hey, Ollie, we have.
1: 27 club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, disgracement My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits. Just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin. The Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, The Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of The 27 Club. Season one of The 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of The 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.
0: Okay, so uh, one thing that I had to wonder, because I think when there are areas that maybe people don't always know about, there's always a moment, like a light bulb moment or a moment of surprise. So what do you find uh, surprises people the most when they start to really learn about the very rich and broad spectrum of African art and its history?
3: You know, I, I think that's something that artists like Ellen Natsui have achieved in a way that is most remarkable. high has one of his, sometimes re- re- referred to as metal cloth sculptures, mm-hmm. and it's on view in the African Art Gallery. When we first acquired it, it was presented on the Skyway Gallery of Contemporary Art, which is what he would prefer. But when people see that work, if you've never seen a work by Elinatsui, it's kind of like a magnet. It just draws people in and they wonder, you know, how is this made? It's so extraordinary. And he's become, you know, the high acquired the magnificent work that we have by Elle before he skyrocketed to international art stardom. So now his work is everywhere and just very widely known. But for people who've never seen it, when you see a work by El Anatsui for the first time It's it's one of those moments of awe.
0: Yeah. Is that it? Usually people just become awed when they realize what's there to be explored and discovered?
3: Yeah. And the accomplishment of it, because it's so ingenious, so simple. And it's there. I know he's been on Art 21. You can just Google L-E-L, short for Emanuel, Anatsui. I won't spell the name, but you can find it in. We can put it in show notes. (laughs) Okay. And... He has a whole workshop of assistants working with him now, and they produce. He prefers to make really large works. And at the Venice Biennale, the same year that the or year after the High acquired the work that we have, he had a gigantic metal cloth sculpture on the facade of the Fortuny Palace. But he's done equally as large scale works at various as on the facades of various museums in London, Berlin. And that's, he likes to create the gigantic works because they even convey a greater sense of movement than the more s- small scale work that we have in the Heist Collection. But they, and that's for him almost a metaphor of, a uh, metaphor for sort of how all human beings sort of long for a sense of freedom and uh, mobility. He never wants the work to look like it's pinned down. Right. But it's it should convey, convey a sense of movement.
0: It's the universal, right? Exactly. Um and you kind of touched on this when you did your sneaky jump around earlier, but uh if there were one thing that you just wish that everybody could magically know and understand about African art and its history, what would it be?
3: That it's not only for Yeah. People of African ancestry or for African people. It's it's a to me. African art, and this is maybe I think about when I was a small child living in Minnesota, and I would go bicycling, bicycling with my friends and brother and sister and cousins, and we would bicycle to this little farm where there was a well, and it was really cool, delicious fresh water, and to me, African art is like a. It was a fresh. It was a spring. It's a well that will, you'll never make it to the end. So it's never boring. There's always something new to learn. Because of course, Africa is such a gigantic continent, with such a rich history and so many diverse artistic traditions. And it's open for all.
0: I love it. That's so beautiful. Uh, And I'm warning you now of the danger that I will just be lurking at the high looking for you at all (laughs) times. Uh, Carol, thank you so much for spending time with us. We're so spoiled. Thank you, Holly. Oh, it's such a delight. Uh, we will include in our show notes all of the information about, uh, the incredible collection that Carol has put together at the High Museum of Art, as well as, uh, some of the key points she hit on in her answers and discussion. Uh, and then we will wrap up with a bit of listener mail. I so love and was terribly charmed by her comparison of African art to a never-ending well of refreshing spring water. Thank you so
2: much again to Carol
0: for sharing her
2: story and her knowledge with us. We'll have links in the show notes to the Highs collection, as well as
0: the Instagram account that she mentioned in the interview. Yeah, she was just lovely and I, I, she very sweetly when we had wrapped had said, oh, you should come down anytime. And I was like, Carol, this is like feeding a stray cat. I will just show up at the museum daily and be like, hi, would you like to spend time with me and tell me about everything in the collection? Uh, she was wonderful and terribly gracious. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and now I have some fun listener mail and I'll keep it short because that interview is a little lengthy. Uh, this is all from our listener Hannah, who has been traveling in Scotland and she very sweetly sent us four postcards. Uh, one is Stirling Castle, which is a lovely picture. Another is Dune Castle, which is where Monty Python filmed bits of holy grail, uh, and it is lovely. Then, uh, she, she sent a really lovely picture of a Highland dress suit, which she said, in all honesty, this just seemed like the most Scottish possible image to send Holly, uh, which is accurate. And the last one, was really, really cool. Uh, She writes, these are some of the tiny dolls and coffins found by schoolboys at Arthur's Seat in Edinburgh. No one is sure who made them or why they exist. My favorite theory is that they were made to provide earthly bodies for the 17 victims of William Burke and William Hare. So thank you so much, Hannah, for all of these beautiful postcards. Again, I know I always say it. I'm saying it again. I'm always so honored that people would take time out of their vacations to think of us. So... Cannot appreciate our listeners more. And when you do that, it, uh, it's very touching. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as missed in history, which means Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Tumblr, Pinterest, uh, come and see all of our social things. We will chat with you. You can also visit our parent site, which is houseofworks.com. You can look up art there, but you could look up almost anything else you could think of, and many, many results will come to you with lots and lots of information. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, where we have a complete archive of every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as show notes on any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on. So we hope you come in and indulge in all of these things and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
1: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
3: We have to get away from this place.
1: Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.